Let's 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 start. Let's say prayers. What um, anybody have any prayer requests for tonight? Um, I have a brother. My oldest brother actually um, has prostate cancer, and uh, it's it, it's spreading. And um, I would like prayers for him. What's his name, Connie? His name is Alvin. Alvin. Joseph. Alvin, yes. Gone. Gone. Anybody else? Um, Anne, we lost your picture. I hope you're here. I, um, I'm here. Okay, good, good. Um, I would love to see your picture if you can put your camera on. Just, it's always good to. See. I think you guys know that how much a buy aims. We see her. We see Anne. Oh, you do. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I don't know what's going on with me. I this, um, hmm, I don't know. Um, oh, Heather's back. Heather, I just, are you here? Yes, I'm here. I I don't have a visual. Everybody else may. I, I th there may be something wrong with what's going on with my side of all of this. But anyway, I'm glad can. Um, does everybody see Heather, or is it just oh, me? No. Heather, I've, I've got a circle with your initials. Do you have your audio or your camera on? Uh, oh, there you are. There you are. Okay. Um, we're we're just starting prayers, so your coming is timely. Um, any any prayers on the part of anybody besides Connie? Oh, just for Chuck for tomorrow. He's having surgery, knee surgery tomorrow morning, so he'll be for a while. I hope not. <laughs> he thinks he's going to be running on Friday, but he's not. <laughs> well, I don't, Ch Chuck, is that a is that a knee replacement or a ligament or cartilage? Or oh, what? Just, they're just going to clean up a little bit of uh, the cartilage. So you'll be in, you'll be in and out. I hope so. Yes. Yeah. 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 Arthur Scott surgery. Yeah. Okay. I um. For a number of you, I don't have pictures. I, I don't know if something's going on with my side of things or technically if you guys have cut out, but um, if if all of you could just check your audios. I, I, when, I, when these things happen, it makes me realize, <laughs> I think you all know this, what a bodily person I am incarnate, that it just seeing your faces makes a difference for me. Um, Hearing voices, I mean, you might as well be on the phone. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always glad to see images. Um, holy cow! Um, Julie, is you're you're joining us tonight? Mm, Julie, can you hear me? No camera. Julie, do you can? Is your audio on? Hey, we also need to say hi to Marilyn, even though we can't ever see her. I know she's always hiding. <laughs> Marilyn, show yourself. That was that was from Karen. Julie, I, anyway, if Julie, if you're here, I'm. I can't tell you from the depths of my heart how just to know you're present again is a just touched me. I'm. If you can show a picture of yourself, I I would be glad. But we're we're saying prayers. Any any. Prayers besides Connie's and Chuck's. 
I'm praying for Chuck's passengers in his plane, not his knee. <laughs> okay, let's... Um, wow. God, it's like old timers. I mean, all these... Tina just arrived. Um, Tina, Tina, Julie, all of you. Um, Connie, we've lost you. If any of you can show your... Connie's there. If well, I, I don't have her. I don't. I don't know what that means. But okay, let's um, let's. I've muted everybody. If anybody wants to come on, please feel free un unmute yourself and do what you're going to do. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Boy, I'm so gladdened right now, speaking for myself, that some of you have been around for a while and have been caught up with whatever your circumstances are. I, I know um, Karen, I mean um, Heather, when I got your email, I, just so you know that all of us were praying for you and your family, I'm assuming because you're back here that things are okay. I'm, I'm glad, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I take that as a sign that your family, uh, and I'll ask you when our prayers are over if your husband's doing well, I'm going to come back to him. But. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and for your presence through the day. Um, you are always here. One of the aims of the work that we do together is to read works that are not centered, you know, in a catechetical way of saying things. It's not people in the pews or we're out in the world, but one of the things that I hope we're all seeing is that you are always there. Um, I'm, I've, we've seen that really clearly in Hamlet. I want to come back to it tonight. You are never not here. The, the problem for all of us is, do we see you? We read these chapters in the Bible where you're healing people of blindnesses. People have been blind from birth. We think we don't need that healing because we can see. The fact that we get glasses is an indication that our sight's okay. Glasses will improve it. I don't think we fully realize how poorly sometimes we see. Um, you make it clear that faith as small as a mustard seed could move mountains. Strengthen our faith. Increase our sight. Help us to see. And at least with respect to what we're doing in this class, help us to make a better defense of our faith to see more clearly exactly what it is in the world we're dealing with and with greater courage and humility bring our faith to the world, to each other and our families and whatever it is we're doing in the world. I ask for a special prayer on Connie's brother, on Alvin. Um, heal him, be with him in this period where his cancer has been uncovered. If there's a treatment, help the doctors be sure-handed and clear-sighted. Lots of doctors are not. Keep these doctors focused and clear-sighted. And um, watch over Chuck and his operation. It doesn't sound like a major one, but things can happen. Let his heart be quiet. Let the doctors be sure. And from my perspective, more importantly, watch out for his passengers. Um, <laughs> um, 
We are so grateful to have this time together. Um, it is a great joy for me to do this. Strengthen all of us in the work that we're doing. Help us to bring it to the world more completely, particularly where there are risks, where people won't like it. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, you all know from last week that we're going to go through the Eliot's Four Quartets. Um, those of you who were, who were here when we did Auden's the canonical, you know, the Horace canonical, you know that that was an awfully long poem. It, um, I, I, I'd never done it before. I, I, in fact, I'd only read it recently. It was one of the reasons I wanted to bring it to you because I was stunned by it. It was such a compelling poem. It was really long. Um, Hori's Canonica, the hour, the canonical hours of the church. The way he lined up those hours with our way of dealing with culture and um, and um, and the way he lined them up with the day Christ was crucified, I thought was amazing. Amazing, just truly amazing. So from our perspective, I think it was one of the great poems of the 20th century. I hadn't, I had read it before, but I was glad we did it. Without a question, T.S. Eliot's Burnt Norton is probably the, is, well, is the, is the greatest poetic achievement of the 20th century. And Burnt I, Norton or the quartets? Or four quartets. The, you, you've heard me say this before, that Eliot was, um, one of the more popular figures of the 20th century he had such a great mind, such a gifted mind. He spoke to intellectuals. Intellectuals found a kindred soul in him. Um, but um, when he converted Christianity, I mean, he lost a lot of his audience. And at the end of this, his life, he did the four quartets, and we're doing them. So there are four of them, Bert Norton, East Coker, Dry Savages, and Little Gidding. We're doing Burt Norton now. Each of the quartets, so the, the, the analog to the Burt Quartets is music. It's a quartet. There are four voices, and each of those voices has five parts. So we're going to hear a different kind of music. But the themes that he's tackling are the same themes throughout. The central theme is the theme that we were introduced to through Boethius's Consolation. Um, um, it, it's, it's the theme that God is always at work in the world. There's this principle of a still point at work everywhere. It's, it's most full, I think it's most fully present in poetry because it's there that we learn to see things that we don't see elsewhere. I hope, I hope to reinforce that point when we, when we start with Hamlet because in my review tonight, because I want to emphasize some of the things we did with Hamlet. But Four Quartets is, I think, the greatest poetic accomplishment of the 20th century. It's the deepest mind, the deepest poetic mind. He goes to the deepest realities, and in almost nothing does he deal explicitly with Christ. He knows he's dealing with a non-Christian audience. Um, he's, got to learn to he's got to learn to speak to the world and its problems in a way that doesn't push them away. And in that sense, he does an amazing job. So, 
So we started, remember last week, we started Burton Norton, and I'm just going to read the opening lines and give you a, a quick comment on. Do they know that each of Burton Norton yes. dry cell values, yes. do they know that it's a place? Yes, we I said it last week. Suzanne's asking if you know that each one of these titles refers to a place. I mentioned that last week. There's a place in a historical past, so it's rooted in concrete realities. He's not in... He's not removed from our historical reality. He's, he roots himself in actual events. That's one of the tasks he sets for himself, I think. He starts Burton Norton with these lines, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Every, this is, this is pure Boethius, pure Boethius, even though lots of people won't see the connection. Um, you all know, we all know, that the, the moment most real to us always is this present moment. No sooner did I speak those words than they're gone to a past. They already belong to a past. They don't exist anymore. They don't exist. They're gone. Whatever is to come doesn't exist yet. Is everybody clear on that? The only time that's real for us is this instant present moment. Because no sooner does it come than it's gone. And no sooner does anything that happens in the... I mean, whatever, whatever's going to complete my sentence, it doesn't exist yet. It only comes to be in an existing moment. It only has existence in this present. I hope that's clear. In the past, it's lost its life. In the future, it's not yet whatever's to be. So it was what what was, what will be, all point to this present. But if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If all we have is just the present, then we're in a sad way. If we don't have help from outside this present moment, we are the most miserable of creatures. It's only because a divine help came into the present that we can have this present redeemed. That's fundamental to the whole of the quartets. Is that clear? And you know, we know from Boethius, I think we know anyway, that in, in God's kingdom, there is only, only a present. All things are eternal in a now. There is no past for God. There is no future. So in the kingdom, all things are encompassed. It's one of the one of the most amazing things for me as a teacher. You know, you've been hearing me say this I, for a year now, that one of the themes of the epics, the great epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, is that every one of them goes back to the past, and it carries the past forward to redeem it, brings it into the present. It's the burden that every one of us has. I don't care how bad our parents were, whatever bad happened in the past. We are called to redeem it in the now, to change it by what we do. Our burden is to redeem our lives with Christ. So that's a fundamental theme of the four quartets. Time present, time past are both perhaps present and time future. Time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, 
all time is unredeemable. By the way, I'm assuming everybody knows that you know that there are copies of the whole four quartets in our our site online. If you go online to the C site and to the poetry section, you have copies of all the four quartets. So after he introduces these sort of philosophical abstractions, he turns, he shifts, and he takes us back into the garden. And you know from my presentation that, that I believe, Jung believed it, seriously, Freud did not, but Jung did, that all of us carry this collective unconscious, that the garden is a part of our memory. We want to go back, always. Suburbia is our greatest effort to recover the garden, to have this idyllic world. And we know the irony of it, because no sooner do we get in suburbia, then, um, then it fades. Corruption, sins, show you know, raise their heads. We can't escape sin, but a suburbia is our effort to recover that garden world. He returns us to the garden and he presents, um, he describes this couple looking out of the pool, but the pool is dry. It's empty. It's like a parody of the pool that was once a pool in Eden. Life-giving, springfold, um, watched over by God. They were behind us reflected in the pool, Remember the pool was filled with water, but the, it was concrete, brown edge, dry. A cloud passed and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. It's one of the marks that distinguish us. We try to do so much of what we can to avoid pain. Um, so he moves from those opening thoughts to the garden. My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves? I do not know. Picture for a moment women putting a bowl of rose leaves. Women do this far more than men. They will fill their home with beauties, little decorative things, potpourri. You know, these little beautiful things. And one of them would be a little bowl with rose leaves. What Elliot, what Elliot's doing is, I mean, that's, that's a, not an uncommon decoration on the, on the coffee table in homes. Or somewhere in a home. But it's, it's his way of reminding us that's an image of the garden. That, it, that thing in front of us, which we don't give a thought to, actually has its origins in the garden. Because all of us long to recover that. My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them. So we enter the garden world for a moment, and then you know the bird comes and says, go, go. And it's this stark note of pain Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. So we come back to the present, all that it promises and all of its defeats, all of its sorrows, what it doesn't fulfill. So today I want to start with section two. I'll read it and, and I'll try to restrain myself on, on my comments and leave it to you. Um, but he's, he's, remember, this is the second part. It's going to be the second voice. 
There are four voices. Each one has five parts. Here, he's going to give us a different voice, the way, the way that would be true in a four quartet. Part two. But remember, every one of these sections is, um, um, is repeating the same theme from another perspective. So however much it seems not to resemble what happened in the first, there's a resemblance. We've got to make the underlying connection. In part two, he's going to be talking about things in the blood and constellations. And what we see is they're all there. They're fixed. Those are part of our nature. They reflect each other. So every, every part um, is, gives the same theme from a different perspective. So it helps fill it out. It makes it richer. Part two in Bert Norton. Garlic and sapphire in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. The trilling wire in the blood sings below, inveterate scars, appeasing long-forgotten wars. The dance along the artery, the circulation of the lymph, are figured in the drift of stars, ascend to summer in the tree. We move above the moving tree, in light upon the figured leaf, and here upon the sodden floor below, the boarhound and the boar pursue their pattern as before but reconciled among the stars. So there's all this stuff in flux in our world. And notice the importance of the tree. Garlic and sapphire in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. The axle tree is an axle tree. It's possibly, probably also an image of the cross, the central role of that tree in our history, because it was on that tree that Christ was God. We crucified God. And then there's a break and another voice to the second part. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounding, surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving, Erbung, without motion, concentration, without elimination, both the new world and the old made explicit, understood in the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror. Yet the enchainment of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church at smokefall be remembered. Involved with past and future, only through time is time conquered. Um, the word Erbung is German, I think, for exaltation. 
Okay, um, remember what I've said before, it's so important, uh, I, and I'm speaking with some sense of what's true, what's always been true of us as humans, but I think it's particularly true in our day and age, after Descartes. We believe that everything has to, following Descartes, we believe that everything has to take the form of clear and distinct ideas. Our minds can grasp these clear and distinct ideas. Gives us certainty. Eliot made the point repeatedly that um, when we read poetry, we very often have a sense of something long before we understand it. It's as if we know through what St. Thomas calls connaturality, sympathy, or feeling. That we have a feeling for something as a way of knowing, but we can't put it into words. It's not clear yet. He said that very often it's important to allow for that. When we read a poem, we don't often understand it right away. We can, we have a feeling, that feeling gives us a sense of something, but it doesn't take the form of clear and distinct ideas. Probably never should. Um, so if, even, if, even if it doesn't come clear, read it again. It, 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 its meaning will emerge in time. Um, okay, so that's the second part of Burt Norton. Let's let's turn to Shakespeare now. Before we do, as a practical matter, I should have done this before we started. Um, our schedule was to do Shakespeare, Hamlet, Lear, Pericles, and Winter's Tale. Winter's Tale, I think, is the greatest play on forgiveness that I've ever read, so I'm looking forward to getting there. And after that, I, I talked about doing uh, Melville, Moby Dick, and Hawthorne, which I think are, are prophetic in the sense that both Melville and Hawthorne are what I would say exercising Protestant demons. They're critiquing something unhealthy in America and in an amazingly profound way. So I thought about doing them with you guys. I'm, I'm going to put out a suggestion here and come back to you guys on it. We've been doing um, Chesterton's, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, which is the book that brought me into the Catholic Church, by the way. It's not a fictional work. It's an He's a journalist, and he's making a defense of his beliefs. It, I, think it's, I think it's probably one of the most profound books of the 20th century. Um, it's a book he wrote before his conversion to Catholicism, but... Um, it, it already shows how Catholic he is before his conversion. In that book, he is, he is defending the apostolic tree. Now, I know this is going to sound catechetical, and it, it couldn't be farther away from the truth. He's a journalist. He's a newspaper man. He's writing, to, he's writing to a broad popular audience. He's drawing on ordinary experiences from every life. He never meant, almost never mentions Christ or the Bible or the Apostles' Creed. What he's doing is looking at ordinary things and showing that there's something wrong in most currents of modern thinking. And he takes every one of them up. Marxism, Freud, the will, materialism, necessity, predetermination, predestination. He takes every one of the positions that most modern takes, moderns take intellectually and shows that there's something wrong about them. They all profess to be liberal. They all profess to help man free himself. And what Chesterton makes clear is that every one of them 
just reinforces the chains around human beings, that they put us in these prisons. He wrote in the early 20th century. Yeah, it's one of the most amazing books of the 20th century. Early. It, it ch <laughs> just <laughs> wrote early in the 20th century. He died in the, I think, in about 1935 or so. But he, he and by the way, his, uh, his other major famous book, he, he, wrote, he wrote over 100 books. He's just an amazing, amazing man. He wrote another book called Everlasting Man, and it was Everlasting Man that led to the conversion of C.S. Lewis, who just picked up what Chesterton do, um, was doing and carried it forward. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis are probably the two greatest apologists of, of Christianity in the 20th century. What I'd like to do, I think, uh, th so this is going to involve a change of course, but I'll get back to you guys and see what you think, is turn away from literature for a little bit and do C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, because he's directly dealing with one of the most dangerous forces in the modern world, which is education, what people are doing with education. Heather's ears should be keep, um, honed in on this. Heather, are you there? I don't see your... Anyway, yeah, good. Um, Abolition of Man addresses directly a problem in education. He, um, and he does it in a profound way. It, it's, I think, one of the most important books in the 20th century. G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy deals with a much broader problem. But I think what I'd like to do is take those books, because if we, if we tackle those books, you'll be in a position to see what's wrong with our world and identify those wrongs and be able to speak to them. You'll know what's wrong and why and be able to give a reason. So if anybody asked you for a defense of your faith, here's where I'm going, you guys. This is a big curve. If anybody asks you for a defense of your faith, you should be able to give it. You should be able to ev answer every one of these things that people present as the positions that will free man in the 20th century and show that there's something wrong with them. Anyway, I think what I'd like to do after we do Shakespeare, the Pericles and um, Wintersdale is is do Chesterton, or C.S. Lewis and Chesterton, and then go back to, if we're still together, go back to Moby Dick and um, Hawthorne Scarlet Letter. But give that some thought, okay? And I'll, and I'll come back and, and see what you guys have to say about that, okay? I think what's happening to me is, particularly because of what happened to me this last few months, that I don't know how long I'm going to be here, and I know that probably sounds dramatic, but I don't want to take... Time, I don't want to take time for granted. And before I finish this work with you guys, I would like to be able to take you to dog, the dogmas of our church, specifically the disorders of our time, and have you take a close look at them so you know exactly what we're dealing with and how you can answer it. So that's very much on my mind. Um, okay. Okay, let's... Let's the first book you talked about was Chesterton. The book? It's called Orthodoxy. Is that your, what you're asking, David? It's called Orthodoxy? Orthodoxy. The two books are, are C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. It's a very small book, very short, very small book. And C.S. Lewis's, um, no, Lewis's ortho, or I mean, Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Okay. You can get any copy. I'll, I'll go online and recommend a copy. But you can pick up any copy, anything cheap. Because everybody's going to have different pages. We're just going to have to stumble along with chapters when we do orthodoxy. 
Okay, let's, I, I want to take a few minutes with Hamlet. Um, I asked everybody if you would go back to that picture of St. Gregory, St. Gregory in the Mass. I hope you all did it. If you've done it, you know that in that picture, Jury, Dre is showing St. Gregory, a bishop, kneeling at the altar, celebrating the Mass. And surrounding him are these priests and other functionaries, you know, altar boys and whatever their status is, who are serving in the Mass. They're doing what they should do. They're, they're helping to serve. But if you've seen the picture and you've looked at it closely, you know that the only one in that picture, the only person in that picture who sees Christ is Gregory. And if you haven't seen that picture, go online because it's absolutely crucial that you see it or you're going to miss the point here. You could move the camera over there and show them. No. Um, oh, there you are. Thank you, Karen. There it is. There it is. Bless your soul. Oh, Robert. Robert and Karen and Suzanne. Suzanne keeps, she keeps poking me in my ribs here, telling me to get with it. Um, um, if you've seen the picture, you can see very... Wait, this is the point. Let me put it starkly. How many people see Christ in that picture? How They're all Christians. They all believe in Christ. Yeah? They're all there. They're celebrating the Mass. Would you... Would you um, they're, all, they're all celebrating the Mass. How many of them see Christ in that moment? None of them. I mean, it goes back to one of the things I have been putting to you for pro probably a year, and I know I did it at one of my talks at, at um, Elizabeth Seton. Um, when we take the Eucharist, where are we? You know that I've been talking about the apophatic, that coming into contact with those things we don't know very well, stepping on a entering a place in which everything's removed as it is for the mystic and seeing what can't be seen. Um, remember, I've asked you this question. When we take the Eucharist and we're out in the parking lot, I'm sorry, Mary's not here. When we're out in the parking lot, where are we? Where are we? For lots of people, we're on our way to our car. How many people actually feel that in that moment they're in the kingdom with Christ on their way to the car. Yeah? Because Christ's in us, he's invited us into the kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But whatever is going on in that moment in the parking lot, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That in that moment, he has invited us. We participate in an act that draws us to the kingdom. We are there. Do we see it? Do we feel it? The, the beauty of the, of the Gregory Mass picture to me is that it shows how blind we are, that we very often don't see. We take things for granted. We all go to Mass, we celebrate the Mass. Gregory is the only one who actually sees Christ. That's a powerful picture to me. So here was my question about Hamlet. You know that... Um, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, Shakespeare is dealing with a play about an actual historical prince. I think he lived in the 9th century, 9th or 11th century. I can't remember which. Wittenberg was founded in 1502, I think. 
Luther hung up his theses in 1515 or 1517. So Shakespeare's writing about an actual historical prince and an actual historical place and event. He's got the Reformation on his mind. Hamlet just returned from Wittenberg. It's where Luther hung up his theses. Shakespeare's not concerned about historical literalism. He's concerned about meaning, what we see. So Hamlet is coming back, and when he comes back, he learns from this revelation, this private revelation, that his uncle killed his father. So the central act of Hamlet is this private revelation and the burden it places on this young man. Okay? Now let me stop just for a second, because we've gone over this numerous times, but I want to make sure we're all together. What's at the heart of this play is that private revelation. Nobody, nobody knows what the ghost said except Hamlet. Not Horatio, not Marcellus, not, the, not any of the guards. Nobody else. And it's on the basis of that that Hamlet is faced with all these burdens. He has to prove the revelation, because it could be a demon. So he puts on the mousetrap play. And after the mousetrap play, he's convinced that the revelation was truthful, that the ghost was honest that um, his, um, his uncle murdered his father and he has to avenge his death. And we know how serious he takes that because he's ready to kill Claudius at prayer in the next scene, except he's at prayer. But in the very next scene after that, um, he thinks Claudius is in the closet and he runs him through the sword. Just happens to be Polonius. So we know after the mousetrap play, he's serious, absolutely dedicated to what he's going to do. But he's, but he's dealing with a private revelation. There's no way in which anything in the natural order can help him because that, that private revelation has raised him above it. It's presented him with another kind of problem. So Shakespeare's dealing with a problem introduced into the West by the Protestant Reformation, okay? Now, the whole play is about Hamlet's quest. Is he going to kill Claudius or not? You know that at the end of the play, I'm just going to read, we've already done it, but um, you know that at the end of the play, he's sent off to England by Claudius to his death. And during the, um, the Channel Crossing, Hamlet's asleep and he's suddenly overtaken by this misgiving. This is in Act 5, Scene 2. Um... In my heart there was a kind of fighting that I would, would not let me sleep. Methought I lay worse than the mutinies and the bilboes rashly, and praise thee rashness for it. Let us know our indiscretion sometimes serve us well when our deep plots do pall, and that should learn us. There's a divinity that shapes our end. Rough hew them how well. How many of us responding to a feeling in our heart? Hamlet associates us with the feeling of a woman. You know, she's too given to feelings. It's like giving in to a feeling in himself. How many of us would give in to a feeling like that and act on it? Most of us say, oh, nonsense, put it away, go, go back to sleep. He gets up, goes down below, opens up the commission, and finds out that he was on his way to his own death. What he does is substitute the names of his friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and seals it up. And Horatio says, how did you seal it up? How could you do it? Not give yourself away. He says, this is still Act 5, Scene 2, why even there was heaven ordinate. I had my father's signet in my purse. Even there was heaven ordinate. Hamlet is realizing that a god is looking out for him. 
Now compare this moment and its effect on Hamlet with any moment before it. Hamlet has been able to trust nobody. He doesn't trust in God. He didn't even trust his father's ghost. He had to prove that it was right because it could have been a demon trying to trick him. He has this experience, this revelation. It's another private revelation at sea, but it takes a different form. He's going to go into the fencing match with Laertes and Laird, and he has this misgiving again. He says, um, this is Act 5, Scene 2, about line 200. Um, it's nothing but foolery, but it's such a kind of gains giving as would perhaps trouble a woman. Women would give into these things. You know. Horatio, if your mind disliking and obey it, I will forestall the repair hither and say you're not fit. I'll make excuses. Hamlet says, no, not a whit. We defy augury. There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. Tis not to come, it will be, n it will be not to come. It will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all, since no man of aught he know he leaves knows what is it to leave but times let be. The most important thing for him is to be ready for whatever happens. He's accepted his death. He's turned his trust over to a god. He's not trying to control everything the way he did before. And one of the major questions that I asked you in our work on Hamlet is Hamlet at the end when he kills Claudius the same Hamlet that he was in the beginning. Is the spirit in which he kills Claudius the same spirit in which he received the quest from his father? My answer to that is no. The spirit of the challenge, the quest he received from his father, was an old, old honor code. It's his father wanting to conquer another man and take vengeance on his murderer. Hamlet's a Christian. He's gone to a Christian, a Catholic school. Um, he doesn't belong to that old economy, even though he carries it forward. He's a man of honor. He will, he will fight Laertes, a sword fight with him, believing he can win. And when he does kill the king, it's spontaneous. He does it in response to the queen and Laertes, when Laertes says, you know, we've tricked you. Here's my question, and it's a very serious one before we go ahead, because it points towards Lear. Um, and let me put it out just as a proposition, and, and you guys can disagree or agree if you want. I'm going to argue that what's at the center of Hamlet is a miracle. Hamlet receives this quest, right, from his father. In the Channel Crossing, he has this misgiving. From the, from the point of view of the Catholic Church, we would say that's the Holy Spirit breathing into him. You know, light, St. Augustine would call it illumination, that gives him this sense that something's wrong. He goes down. If he had not acted on that sense, he would have gone to England and been executed. Everybody's got to be clear on this, right? He would have been executed. It's only because he acts on that misgiving that he goes down and finds out what Claudius was plotting and changed it all. And you know that he's captured by the pirates and he's ransomed and he's returned to England. I'm going to say that's the nature of a miracle. Something happens to radically change. Everything goes on. Now here's my question. You may disagree. If you do, please step forward. But here's hear my argument anyway. 
who in the play, who in the play except Horatio, understands that a miracle took place? That a providential God was looking out for Hamlet and helped him. The reason I'm saying this is because most critics today, most secular, agnostic, professional, educated critics say Hamlet's another one of Shakespeare's plays showing the meaninglessness of life. That nothing means anything. Here's a guy who dies without any purpose. They give no credence to that channel crossing, what happens. They just look past it. There's two ways to look at the play. You can look past the channel crossing and say that when Hamlet kills the king, he's doing it in the spirit in which his father gave the quest to him. Yes? To taking vengeance. If you put the channel crossing in there and his words to Horatio, if it's going to be, you know, if there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow, if a God looks out for a sparrow, how can he not look out for us? If there's special providence in the fall of a sparrow, if it be now, it, it's not to come. It's going to happen now. It won't be in the future. If it not be to come, it will be now. It's not going to be in the future. It'll be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all, since no man of aught he leaves knows. He doesn't know what's going to happen. What is it to leave but times? Let be. Let go. Be ready for what happens to do. He's a man of justice. He's a man of love. He's a man of honor. He wants to avenge his father's death. He loved the man. He gets all over his mother for what he sees as a betrayal. He has a, a, a quest of justice, of honor, to fulfill. It implies a love. So when he says, the readiness is all, he means, be ready to bring all of that to whatever's going to happen, no matter what it is. And then he goes into the fencing match. Now here's my question. How many people see that miracle in the play? How many people are aware of the change he underwent? Besides Horatio, name a person. Does anybody know? No. Yes, am I right? Nobody knows except Horatio, and it's only because Hamlet tells him. Now here's my question, and it, it goes to the role of poetry in our lives, which you know I've been hitting you over the head with for a year. In Hamlet, we've got a closed form. We have a closed form. There's a beginning and an end. We can look, as readers, we can look at that closed form and we can put things together. So it's not hard, even though, I mean, I think lots of critics are really dumb. I mean, lots of critics overlook that channel crossing. They just don't give it the importance it has. They can overlook it. We've got a closed form. In that close form, there's a channel crossing that takes place, and in it, Hamlet sees that a providential God is at work in his life. If he's watching out for sparrows, he's watching out for me. And he said, if it's going to come, it's come. If it's not, it'll be now. The most important thing is to be ready now, to be ready. That's as close to Christ as I know of, to give your life up for justice, for love. Nobody in the play sees it except possibly Horatio. How many people in the audience see it? A lot of people are going to miss it. How often in her life, and here's the crucial question, we don't have closed forms. In Shakespeare's plays, we've got a closed form, but in it, Shakespeare's making us aware that a miracle is taking place. 
a providential God has intervened and done something that radically affects Hamlet. Who sees it? Nobody, except ratio. In life, we don't have a closed form. Life is open-ended. But in poetry, in what Shakespeare's done, he's made us aware that very often miracles take place that we don't see. So we're like the people in Gregory's Mass. There's only one person in that Mass who sees something of the other world. Everybody else, even though they're all Catholic and they're worshiping in a Mass, are caught up in the rituals of the Mass here in this world. They do not see God intervening. Hamlet does. Shakespeare is wise enough to know that he's giving us a closed form. If we put things together, it should help us in the way that we would be helped if we were looking at St. Gregory's Mass picture. We'd see that lots of people don't see. We, we live in life. Life is open-ended. It's not a closed form. But it seems to me what he's done for us is he's made it possible for us to wonder. Do we look at things? Do we put them together? You know that the church, the, the, the role of the magisterium in the church, I think, I think it was Heather that hit this on the nail a couple of weeks ago. You know that the magisterium has as its responsibility to look into these questions because very often people have religious experiences and they're convinced that something miraculous has happened. And we know that very often people let their imaginations run wild, that they can believe something happened when it didn't. The church has got to find evidence before it supports a miracle. Is everybody clear on this? This is our faith. This is absolutely crucial for us. Shakespeare was nowhere more Catholic than in what he did with Hamlet. There's evidence for us to see. So here's the question. In our lives, which are open-ended, how well do we see? Do we make the effort, the readiness is all, to prepare ourselves? Do we look at things to see? Did something miraculous take place and we missed it because it's so ordinary? Somebody in our household saved from COVID? You know, it's, I mean, we could go on and on. The sort of things we take for granted in our lives every day might have involved a miracle. I came out of the hospital. And by the way, I'm going to be really honest. I am such a rationalist. I am such a rationalist. I mean, I, I, I so seriously questioned miracles. Was there something miraculous in that? It, it scares me to think about it. I'm being really mm -hmm. honest with you guys. Do miracles take place in our lives? Wait, do lots of people claim miracles when there was nothing miraculous? I don't have a doubt about it. I'm too aware of our human failings not to be aware of that. People claim religious experiences all the time. But are there, do miracles take place that we're not aware of because they seem to take place in ordinary experiences? This was a channel crossing. He's crossing a sea. Rosencrantz and Guildenslur, they're asleep. The captain and the shipmates asleep. They're doing their jobs. Who saw what was going on? Are you all following me? Shakespeare is helping us to see that there is a transcendent element in our lives. And very often we can't see it. 
He's a poet. He's making us clear. Our life is open-ended. We have a much harder job. But at least he's helped us to wonder. And if you remember Aristotle, and I know you all do because I know you all know your Aristotle. <laughs> you know the beginning of the metaphysics is that um, all wisdom begins in wonder. That we stand like children. Wonder is asking the cause of things. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Too often when we get older, we stop wondering. We think we know everything. Mm. Poets, I've been arguing for a year, help us to recover our wonder. Let me stop with this review. Any, any questions or comments about Hamlet or some of the assertions that I'm making here? Well, yes, uh, Bob, you referred quite a few times to a, a closed form right. uh, versus our open-ended life. So you're right. speaking of of the work that Hamlet Hamlet lives in the work that we're that we're reading, right? So, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I mean, so glad, Mike. Do you have a question about that? What are you? Do. You... No, I, I was just trying to get a sense of the term and what you were describing, and and I, I get it. I get it that you know it's, it's a, uh, we can we can. Uh, understand the concept of uh, God acting in the life of Hamlet in the play, but it's a quite a different thing to uh, see it in our own lives. Right. The poet is the one who helps us to see it. I mean, you know that I've been saying that all along. And what it what it does is at least it awakens a wonder in us. You know, our you know this. Hamlet's, that's another story. Each one of us has our own stories. You've got, you know, your life has a beginning, middle, and end with your family, your wife, your children, and all of us. The, the question that I'm raising here in the context of Hamlet is if, if the poet is showing us something important, and I think he is, the Protestant Reformation, the problem it presents, these are real problems for us. Is there something else to learn? And I think one of the things is that there's a middle a miracle that takes place towards the end of the play that radically changes everything. Um, but the interesting thing is that's in a closed form. We can see it. We can put the facts together and we can make deductions. You know, but in real life, it's much harder. It's we live in a more open-ended. But if we take Boethius seriously, he's making that argument. Shakespeare seriously, that these things go on all the time. Do we see them? Do we do we make the effort to you know to open ourselves to wonder? I think is probably where I best should leave it. Anybody? So I have a question. Yeah. I have a question. Who's that? This is Heather. Heather, I can you, you? I lost your picture again. It may be just me, but go ahead. Okay. Come on. Um. So my question is this: Does this make Hamlet, not a tragedy in the classic sense. Good because in the classic about. sense, uh, in, a, in a tragedy, right, the character starts off at some higher level and descends, because of their own flaws, descends to a lower, a much lower point. And of course, in school, as I'm sure the rest of you heard, we were always taught that Hamlet was a tragedy, but this is not now sounding like a tragedy anymore so well, much. I mean, he dies, but death is not the worst thing. Doc, um, 
what do you do with these teachers? Somebody help me out. What do you do with these guys? Um, <laughs> uh, what a good question. Um, what a good question. Um, I've missed you. Um, what a good question. Um, I've tried briefly to make a distinction here. Boy, you are, God. You know, you're throwing my class off tonight again. I'm sorry. Um, no, you're, actually, you're right. You know, you know that I'm just not going to miss chances to put colds on your heads. No, you're, what you're doing is really, really good. I've made this point before, but it's a tough point, and I, and I say it now with some sense because the question you're asking shows it's a troubling in your mind, and you have a lot of support behind you for that question. Ancient tragedies assumed a kind of fate or destiny. We look at, at say, Oedipus Rex, say, or even the um, Oresti trilogy. There's this supernatural world that has an effect on our world, and it left the ancient world, the people in that world, and particularly the poets who are, I hope you're seeing, are particularly sensitive, gifted people. They see things that other people don't. Um, with a sense of fate. So when Oedipus, say, just take Oedipus for an example, when Oedipus grows up, he has hanging over in this, this sense of a destiny that he's fated to kill his father and sleep with his mother. That's a death. I've got a different take on that, so I, I want to be careful here because I think modern intellectuals feed into it. There's two ways of looking at that. Um, you can look at it and say, it's going to happen anyway, but it seems to me one of the questions we should be asking and we don't is, what would have happened if they'd not tried to avoid the God's prophecy? And nobody asks that question because we know from prophecies throughout literature that very often the prophecies have a different meaning from the one people, particularly the tragic heroes, give it. So I don't want to leave it that way. And we know from Oedipus at Colonus that Oedipus is blessed. He, so even if he killed his father and married his mother, he, the gods take him into a divine life. It shows... Um, Sophocles is showing the great value of suffering. It, it's more than that. He's showing it's a central role for wisdom, that people can't come to a wisdom except through suffering. But so there's this sense of a destiny or fate that hangs over the ancient classical world, as you put it, and it, it colors its sense of tragedy. I would say Hamlet is a tragedy, but I'd say it's a Christian tragedy. And I'd make this distinction that for Shakespeare, and that's why I want to get to Pericles and uh, and particularly Wintersdale, because it, it'll get cleared up in Wintersdale. Right now it's a, you know, Hamlet and Lear are both dark tragedies. There's a lot of suffering and pain. But I still think they're tragedies. They they follow the the plot, the action of a, of a classic tragedy. But there's a difference, because what happens in these Christian tragedies is there's, there's an element of choice that's given greater emphasis here than it would in the ancient tragedies. And let me remind you here, I, you probably know this, but just from your description, because I don't want to leave any misunderstandings, you know how important this stuff is for me. Remember from Aristotle that the, the, um, the, the, the trajectory, the action of a tragedy is from good fortune to bad. But as, as Aristotle says, and I believe he's absolutely correct, that Plato doesn't get close enough to this, Aristotle does, that all good tragedies, all good tragedies turn on a peripatia and an anagnorisis. So peripatia is a turn in the action, a turn. Anagnorisis is a recognition. 
that every great tragic hero has a moment where he sees his fault and turns and he sees. To that extent, I, I, would, I would say be careful because my own sense of tragedy is the trajectory goes towards a fall, or I mean towards a height and in a fall, but in all great classical tragedy, that recognition um, changes the person so that even if it has a tragic effect, and it does, let's just take Oedipus, that the person that we're left with at the end, I'm going to argue, is extraordinary. Oedip I'm going to say Oedipus at the end of, he's just, if you, I don't know who, you know, I don't know what you guys have watched or read, but if you've done Oedipus, you know that when he learns he killed his father and married his, he slept with his mother, his children, he is brother to his children and offspring because he's a parent to them. The horrors of that incest over overwhelms him. He created these children and he's brothers to them. Shakespeare's, by the way, Shakespeare's going to use that in Pericles. We're going we're to visit all this stuff, this good stuff. <laughs> um, Hamlet is horrified, just horrified. He's so shocked and overcome with the horror of what he'd done that he blinds himself. He gouges out his eyes. Not Hamlet. Or, or, or Oedipus. So at the end of Oedipus Rex, we're left with this figure on stage with sockets with blood coming out of them. We don't see the blinding. What we see is the effect of it. And we're left with a sense of a horribly grotesque figure. But I'm going to argue, um, and it leads to what Sophocles does at Oedipus and Colonus, because Oedipus will ascend. He will be blessed by the gods. That at the end of Oedipus Rex, we are, we are witnessing, even, however grotesque, it's close to the cross, we're, which, we're witnessing a, an extraordinarily beautiful man. He has seen his faults. He has done, taken punishment on himself. I mean, who else would have done it? He sees himself more, he sees the nature of sin. He's felt the experiences of trying to avoid the, the prophecies of the gods. So for people to just leave this as one-dimensional to me is just a, there's a lot more going on. But, but that's a classical tragedy. But I just wanted to reinforce this point that for Aristotle, all great tra tragedies involve Simple tragedies don't. They're, they're not as good, but really good tragedies um, turn on a peripatia and an anagnos, a moment of recognizing and a change. And that certainly is one way of describing. And if it is, then you have to say, um, Oedipus is not the same man. He's not as blind as he was, or arrogant. Both of those, he, tremendously arrogant man. He thought he knew everything. And he thought he handled everything and could, could get away from the gods. So the, the man who, who, who we're left with after that turn is not just a guy who descended. You know, I'm, I'm using your words, Heather. In my own mind, at least, I look at that figure as an extraordinary figure, even, even though in the world's terms, his eyes are out, he's bloody, he's, he's, people are disgusted with him. It's like looking at Christ, you know, on the cross. They're horrified by him, disgusted with him. I love him. I mean, I just look at him and think, Extraordinary figure that he survived that, and he'll go on to in Oedipus Rex to be um, assumed. Shakespeare's tragedies are tragedies. I would say they're still tragedies. They they follow the same Aristotelian pattern, but I just think there's a greater element of choice. Um, and one of the things you shouldn't forget is that for Shakespeare, Hamlet's a Christian. He's Catholic. Macbeth is Christian. 
Othello is Christian. Othello's just been baptized. All of them are Christian. Shakespeare knows that. So even though he's aware of the pagan attitude towards fate and destiny, that and it has a role in his thinking, it, it doesn't have the hold for him that it would have for the pagans. He knows that there's free choice, that there's heaven and damnation. Um, lots of people are going to be horrified at what I'm saying right now. There are lots of people who want to see Hamlet, Macbeth, and Othello as tragic in the classical sense in which you're presenting them, and they're going to be critical of people like me because they're going to say, these guys are always finding something good in people. You know, that that we're seeing something that's not there. I hope by what I've shown you in Hamlet that there is something positive going on in him that we won't find in a classic tragedy. His channel crossing, you know, the readiness is all. That's a different man. So um, I believe it's tragic, and I believe that most people would, would fault me, and Christians would say, this guy's trying to read something good into this, and... Um, but I, but I, I mean, I, I hope, I hope I've not misspoken here. I mean, everything, you know, my whole approach is I, I don't want to make a claim that doesn't have evidence in the text that whatever interpretations I have have got to stand the test of the text. And so I think I'm not, I'm not, um, coming to a faulty judgment on this. It's a tragedy. Um, for Shakespeare, for sure. But I think it has a very different meaning, a very different feel from classical tragedy. It's very subtle, but it's very real. And you're dismissed from class right now. <laughs> Anybody else on Hamlet before we before we turn to Lear? Not just a brief comment that I don't think however many times I read the book or watched the play, I would have discerned that. So, yeah, thanks for the guidance, Aaron. I'm glad, and thank you for that, Chuck. I, I just think, you know, I, I, you know, you know, those of you who have been with me and, you know, in the early beginnings of our work together, I presented Plato's Cave, you know, to everybody's caught in the cave and taking appearances. I just think that's so much more a part of our life than people recognize, and, and so many of us grow up influenced um, in our ways of thinking by the world around us. If you've grown up in this world, you're, I mean, 95% of the people who are going to be reading Hamlet are going to, they're certainly not going to present him the way I have. You know, in the 19th century, he was um, procrastinating, delaying, he didn't act. I mean, that, that just does not square with the play. Hamlet yeah. does not procrastinate. As soon as he gets the evidence from the mousetrap, see, he's ready to kill Claudius. And the the evidence in the play is clear. He's ready. To, he doesn't kill him at prayer because he. And I I hope I've been clear that Hamlet puts himself at risk at that moment because he wants to damn that man. That's not vengeance. I mean that that's more than vengeance. Hamlet's at risk there, but in the very next scene he runs Polonius in, thinking it's Claudius. He fights in the in the pirate scene and he fights with uh, Laertes at the end. But he's not here. This is so important. He's not like Laertes, who's a jock. He's not like, um, what's the, the Norway prince? Fortinbras. He's not Fortinbras, who's a jock. Those men are athletes, bold warriors. I hope that's clear. I tried to emphasize that when we went Both of those men are brave, courageous men. Hamlet's got an intellect in him. He's sensitive. He's got, a, he's got the soul of a poet. 
He's educated, he's sensitive, he's Christian, he's sensitive to theological realities, but none of those things makes him soft. He's ready to fight. He, he just has to get past his scruples. And to do that, he has to do, he has to put on the mousetrap scene. I mean, he has to do a lot that neither Fortinbras or Laertes have to deal with. He's an extraordinary figure. How many people today presenting Hamlet are going to do justice to the complexity of that young man? What Shakespeare's doing is showing that the Protestant Reformation so complicated our life, so complicated, it's left us with burdens that we didn't have before. That's part of the genius, it seems to me, of this play. And, and the reason for saying this, I mean, one of the reasons I want to do this is because I'm assuming, trusting, that every one of you guys carries those burdens, whether you're aware of them or not. You're moderns. All, we all are. I am. You are. Whether you want to admit it or not, you carry those problems in you. You can't help. We're all, we've all felt them in our world growing up. How well do we deal with them? How well do we see them? You know, how, how well are we aware of them? What can we do with them? It's reading for reason for doing this poetry. It's, I laugh at this because I think, you know, most people think, oh, we're doing this stuff on poetry. Oh, how sweet, how nice. 90% <laughs> of the poetry we've been dealing with, I mean, I don't know if you guys see this, but has been really dark, really dark. Okay, one quick question before we go to Glear. One quick question. Unless there's any, anybody else on Hamlet? Can you get the one? Anybody else on Hamlet? Connie. <laughs> I'm just going to say what Chuck uh, said about there is no way on earth what we, well, me, let me speak for myself, ever gather uh, from just reading the book what you have taught us. Yeah. Yeah, it's just no way. I mean, it's just not. It's not in this. <laughs> that you guys are doing this to me is is. Um, I I mean, you guys are remarkable to me. I hope you see that I'm not just speaking in the wind. That this is in the play. That I'm not. Right. Right. You know, I'm I'm trying to be faithful to what's in front of me. That, um, be, because Christ, you know, when we did the Divine Comedy, one of the points that I wanted to make when we did the Paradiso was a really important thing. When we went through the heavens, I, I made this, I asked you guys this question. Why didn't Christ greet Dante in the, in the um, Purgatorio, in the, you know, in the Garden of Eden? Why didn't Christ meet him instead of Beatrice? And one of the reasons I suggested is because he doesn't know Christ. He won't really know this Logos until he sees this whole creation. If you put that together with Christ is, I, do, I, I just, I, I feel such a reluctance saying this, but if you put that next to, um, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? You know, it's just a simple thing, and if you put, I just, I, it cuts me to do that, but I don't know how, I mean, I, we, anybody who loves Christ, you have to say, good for you. But if you put that view next to what Dante does in the Paradiso, you say, this is the word that John presents in you know, the beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word who created everything. This is him. He is, there's this divine amplitude, plenitude, being in his character. He's not just a buddy. He's not just man. He is all God, all man. 
And in our world, we tend to do everything we can to take the God out of him. But if you look at the Paradiso and you come out of it, you think, holy cow, Christ did this. This is, this is Christ. He did all this. This is in him. This is what he's called us to. It's so much greater than we know um, that the whole purpose for doing this is to try to recover or, or carry forward what our Catholic faith has given to us because it's, it's being lost today. So anyway, thank you for those kind words. Um, okay, before we start, I've got a curve to throw you guys. This is a test. Nobody's getting out here. You cannot leave class right now, none of you. There's no exit door. The doors are locked. Um, I just tried to make the case that there's a miracle at the center of Hamlet that lots of people don't see. And one of the reasons for doing this is because you know we're going to start Lear, and in Lear it's a brutal work. And lots of moderns are going to say, this is brutal. There's nothing Christian in this. You know, it's brutal. And if we look around at the world, it's, you, it's hard to look anywhere without finding brutality or violence everywhere. Does that mean God is not there? That is not Boethius's argument. You know that Boethius said God's everywhere. He's always at work. So brutality and violence um, can't keep us from seeing God. Because <laughs> I, just, I think I'm giving something away here. I didn't quite realize, but so many of the works that we're dealing with are deal fundamentally with violence. But anyway, here in Hamlet, you've got a miracle. We've done the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Boethius, Divine Comedy. We did Merchant of Venice. We did All's Well That Ends Well with Helena. And we're doing Hamlet and we're starting Lear. Going back to some of the works that we've read, because all, most of them dealt with violence, and they, almost every one of them deals with this question that Job has to deal with in the book of Job and that Boethius deals with. Why does God allow evil? Why does he allow evil men to prosper and good men to suffer? And another way you could put that is, why does he allow so much evil in the world? What kind of God, and lots of auditors are going to say this, what kind of God would allow this? You guys have got to be able to answer this going to our world. Look around at this world. You, you tell me you believe in a God, and there's this much violence in the world? Get real. Grow up, for God's sake. Get a mature belief. If, if that's the God you believe in, you shouldn't believe in because there's got to be a violence in him. What's your answer going to be? Take a look at the works we've read. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, Boethius, All's Well, Merchant of Venice. In Merchant of Venice... Othello. Um, Othello, thanks. In Merchant of Venice, um, Shylock was going to take Antonio to jail. He was going to be executed. In Boethius, Boethius is going to be executed. There's no sparing him. The lady philosophy isn't saying, I'll get you off this, so be happy. She's saying this is the way things are and leaves him to go to his death. So a lot of the works that we've been dealing with have been fundamentally focused on violence in the world and answering it. Yeah? So there's nothing sugar-coated about anything I'm doing, I don't think. Um, but I want to take a minute with you guys. This is a test. Go back over the works that we've read. Can you find miracles in them? Lots of people would have read Hamlet and not seen the Channel Crossing. They just would have ignored it. They would have read past it. But it's fundamental to that work. You, I, you've got to see that. 
It changes everything. That's the turn. Go back over our works. Take the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, any Divine Comet. Are there miracles that take place that's a part of the action, like the plot in Hamlet, that we can point to and say something miraculous is happening here? I think the reason I'm giving you guys this test, and I'm in earnest about it, because the question that I put to you guys earlier is, do we see miracles in our lives? I mean, lots of people are, are, have active religious imaginations and imagine miracles when they're not there. They think God did everything. Um, but are we, are we looking past miracles, too, sometimes in ordinary affairs? That's a, hard, that's a tough question. I mean, you know that, because I said we're open-ended. It's, it's much harder to get to. But go back to the works that we've read. Can you find miracles in any of the works that we've read? Before we go on to pick up Lear again. Is there a miracle taking place in the Iliad? Let's go back to the very beginning. The very beginning. You can't be more pagan than Homer. Right? He, is, he begins it all. He's eight... 800 years from Christ. The Iliad. It's, you can't read two pages without having 20 battle scenes described. I, went, I, I read them because I was enjoying them. Guys' eyeballs popping out. A spear going through some guy's neck coming out the other side. Um, yeah. Some guy's testicles getting dragged on the floor by a chariot. I mean, the, <laughs> Homer was not squeamish about describing anything. Is there a miracle taking place in that work or not? I know this is sort of unfair because I didn't announce this, but it's hard to say. Are there any miracles? Do you guys remember this is taking you back? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stab. At good, this. good. Yeah. Jump, yeah. Um, and, and you're gonna help. You're gonna have to to help me. You're glad to do um, it. Come. So, the reconciliation in the tent with King Priam. Where he his grief moves the heart of who was it? Achilles. Achilles, yes. Yeah. His grief moves the heart of Achilles. That moment to me has always stood out as That's true. as a grace. Yeah. In that moment. No, I agree. Very powerful. Thing. Yeah, I agree. Anybody else on the Iliad? I'm only going to take a minute with this because I, I don't want to labor the moment, but I, the importance of miracles in our life is... it. What, by the way, one of the reasons this is so on my mind right now, in the Francis group, we're doing Chesterton's orthodoxy. And and Chesterton is setting materialism as a... Not as you know, materialistic, I want things in my home, I've got cars and a home, and it's a, it's a philosophy of life that explains everything. He's tackling that and arguing that um, that view... Um, is predicated on a denial of miracles. That matter explains everything, and there are no such things as God. Or you know, so it's very much on my mind. But let me offer one thought here for the Iliad, and then I'm going to jump. See if you can think of anything else. The turning point in that in that book, if you go back to it, the turning point in that book occurs when Patroclus dies. 
his best friend. It's at that point that Achilles realizes that he let his friend down. And he openly says, I let him down. Um, I was wrong. And I argued then, if you remember, that he's the only, the only man in that book to acknowledge his weakness and a fault. And at that moment he turns. Because once you, and, and he accepts death. But because he, he vows to re-enter the war. And if you remember the, the prophecy that there's that element of fate again. It was prophesied that he would die in war, and so his mother wanted him not to go back into the war. He knew that if he went back into the war, he'd die. When he goes back into the war, in effect, he's giving up his life. And I argued then, that's as close to Christ as you can get in the pagan world. In the pagan world. Not a Christian world, but in a pagan world. He acknowledges his sins, his failures, and accepts his death. Nobody else in that book does that. Nobody. Most of all, King Agamemnon. And I argued then that once a man does that, once any man does that, he has no, what's there to be afraid of? If you, if you set Achilles before that moment and after, you, you have to say, even though he was the greatest warrior in the war, he could never bring that war to an end. Once he makes that change, he does bring it to an end. Something's in him that didn't exist before. When a man's afraid of something, there's always something holding him back, no matter how brave he is. And woman, yeah? If you're a woman and you admit your faults, what have you got to be afraid of after you admit your faults? You can stand up and speak to anybody. You can be obedient to God. You can be obedient to your husband. What's there to be afraid of? Um, where is that going? When he does that, remember that just before that, or just then, he gives, or just before that, he given Patroclus his armor, and Patroclus dies, and Hector takes his armor. Heck, that is both Patroclus and Hector try to be Achilles. They put on his armor, both of them die. When Hector has his armor, Ar um, Thetis, Achilles' mother, makes new armor. And if you remember, because I remember spending time on this, the armor that he originally got, he got from his mother. It was given to her as a wedding guest gift. So it was hers. When Hephaestus makes that armor, it's for him. And I remember making that argument. That means something original to him is going to him that has a transcendent element. It's not from his mother. It's not from his past, from his family line or his lineage. It's way of Homer saying, there's something peculiar to each person. Let it be Matthew. Let it be Peter. Let it be John. I mean, let it be Thomas More, Socrates, Michael. Let it be... Chuck, let it be any of us. There's something peculiar to every one of us. The question is, can we be who we've been given to be? And what Homer's showing us is that no person, no person can be who he's been given to be without divine help. In that moment, he's given that armor. And remember, on that armor was pictured the whole world. So when he presented that to his enemies, nobody could look at it. I remember telling you guys, remember when he put it down? All of his own comrades couldn't look at it. They turned away. That's poetry. It's the wholeness of our world in a story. There it was. Nobody could look at it. 
a miracle's taking place. How do you explain it? Some transcendent gift is being given to him, but it depends. It de- Here's Christ. This is Christ. What was Christ called? Sorry, I'm getting off here. We may not get to Lear today. What was Christ's call? The opening of his call was repent, 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 repent. He says about the sinners when he says forgive somebody, he says, if he comes to you and ask pardon, he says, if he comes to you and ask pardon, forgive him. He says, if he comes to you seven times a day, ask, forgive. But he says, ask pardon. What's the opening of the Mass? It's an act of contrition. I'm sorry, Lord, for having offended you and those I love. It, it places us before God. God himself said, I don't want sac." What did God want? I don't want sacrifices. What did he want? Contrite hearts. Achilles, when he admits his sin and accepts death, he's a pagan, he's not a Christian, but once he goes back into that war, he has nothing to be afraid of. That armor signals that moment when a transcendent element enters his soul. It, in my mind, it moves him towards Christianity. I mean, he goes back into the war, and nobody, nobody can touch him. So there, in, towards the end of the Iliad, is a mir- what, in my mind, is a miracle. It's an amazing moment. It's a moment when a transcendent order enters a human soul and helps that soul to do something he could not have done without it. Yeah? We've, so from the beginning, I mean, you could, take, you could take every work I've done with you guys, you could take every work and you'll find a miracle in the middle of it. How many readers see it? How many people in the story see it? Very few. God is never not with us. Do we see him? Particularly when things go bad. Because in Lear, they're almost worse there than they are in any other story we read. I mean, it's going to be a bloody, bloody ending. Let me stop. I want one more example before we stop. You guys have got to come up with something before we leave. This is on you, you guys. I want another example of a work that we've read in which a miracle occurs. Come on. This is a class test. If 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 nobody pulls it, the whole class goes. You're you're carrying the whole class on your shoulder. This, by the way, this is what we did in basketball in my freshman year in college. We had a five-man weave. You had to weave down the, and do a layup. And we had to do it. We got up to ten times. You had to do it ten times. I mean, by the tenth time, we were exhausted. We could almost not, <laughs> not hold ourselves up. If somebody missed on the tenth time, we had to do it all over again. You can imagine how happy we were with a guy who missed it on the tenth try. <laughs> Come on. I need an example from you guys. It's on you guys now. The women. I'm, wait, hold on, Mike. I'm going to, Lori, let me put this on the women. Come on, Lori and Connie. Lori, you first. Well, I, I don't remember the names of the characters from the very first class. Um, I'll help. Come on. You're not going to get out of this. Come on. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. Come on. Try to name the first work that we did because it's been so First long. book that we did was The Iliad. The Iliad. The Iliad. Or what? Um, oh, say, or, or no, Merchant of Venice. Shakespeare's version of Venice with Portia in the, in the classroom. And a, didn't we do a version of Venice in Othello? 
Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Right. I was thinking of um, of Portia. Um, what I'm, I'm thinking of the trick that she did, but that was a miracle what she did. I just don't remember the details. <laughs> yeah. It was a. I mean, it was it was like she played a trick on everyone, but it ended up being a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, it's hard for me to see that as a miracle, but that she was as wise as she did and what she did was extraordinary. But I, I, I'm going to go with you. I, my take on that is after she does that, when nobody can, ex, nobody expecting that the, either Shylock's going to lose or Antonio, and either way the commercial regime goes down the tubes. If Shylock wins, it means the merchant event, nobody's going to risk anymore. If Antonio wins, nobody's going to risk anymore because their bonds won't be held. So she's in an impossible situation and she resolves it. But shortly after she does that, all of Antonio's ships are returned. Which, right. which to me is... It's she as, was the center of the... She was her grace, as Heather used that word, but her yeah. grace brought yeah. peace. I agree. No, I agree. I agree. You've all been saved. You can thank Lori. <laughs> anybody else anybody else before we go I, I don't want to close you anybody think of anything else we could go to every work and find a, an improbable amazing moment in it I think of Boethius you know, in Const he's going to die so it's not as if he's going to be saved but the fact that Lady Philosophy would come to him in a moment like that and bring that kind of illumination when he's facing his death to give him that kind of relief it's, it's a little bit like Thomas More or Socrates or Christ. You know, that you're going you're gonna to suffer a horrible, unfair, unjust thing. But just before that, this moment of consolation, of a grace, of belief, helps you. It's hard for me to believe that the martyrs didn't experience that, that they carried this great trusting Christ, um, whatever their whatever the suffering they were going to face. Anybody else before we... Michael had something. Michael, Mike, did you have something? Well, I don't know if it's a miracle, but I was thinking of the Aeneid that uh, since the... ever, ever all the way through the, the, the story from the downfall of Troy, uh, Aeneas and his followers had been trying to uh, trying to f make themselves a home, and yet right. something always got in the way right. and right. prompted them to go further until they found their true destiny, their true home. And it was, it was. I don't know. It's like the hand of God working there, but uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you can go over and over and over every one of the foundings and and ask yourself, you know, how did they? Yeah, I, I agree. The, um, I mean, it's a good way to put it. Um, there's a providential, there's a divine order looking out for him all along, um, or he couldn't have made it. Julie, I'm so. Are you here? Can you hear me? Are you here? Yes, Father, I'm here. I just, I, I wish you'd show yourself. I, I haven't seen that lovely face. Well, well, I did earlier. It's not pretty. Oh, there you I'm are. Here. 
Yeah, uh-huh. I'm laying here in the bed listening to you. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm just now. I'm okay. Okay, okay. Thank you. It's just good to see you. Do you have any thoughts about the miracle in our lives? You don't have to come back visually. Do you have any thoughts before we turn to Lear? I'm just listening. Okay, okay. Okay, let's go to Lear. Um, Sorry. I know. We don't have much time, so I'm going to do just a couple of things here to, to try to help move us along. When you do Lear, keep, keep this question in mind, okay? Because the typical response of modern critics on Lear is that it's just a mess and that it shows um, pretty conclusively um, Shakespeare's view of the world as a meaningless place, that all these awful things happen. So the last thing you can say about this play is that there's a God in the world. If there is a God, how could he allow all this stuff? So we've got to answer that. Boethius has already done it, so keep, you know, stay close to him when you're reading, but but keep those questions in your mind. Remember the question that Boethius posed was the Job question. Um, why does God allow evil men to prosper and good men to suffer? And and you can put that differently and say, why does God allow violence in the world? How, how could a good God allow violence? So I, I want to tackle that again here. We did it at Lear, but I'm, gl- but I'm glad, I mean, we did it with Boethius, but I'm glad that we can go back to it. Um, remember the background as just a quick review of some of the things I mentioned last week. Um, the Copernican Revolution is taking place. The Reformation is taking place. Shakespeare's on the verge. He's on the threshold of modernity. Um, I, I think he's probably one of the most gifted, brilliant people who's ever lived on this earth. That being as brilliant and as sensitive as he was and having the command of language that he did and his command of history and knowledge, you know, the whole classical tradition, um, the pre-Socratics, Plato, Aristotle, um, um, St. Augustine, Boethius. Boethius is a major figure. The Wheel of Fortune is one of the major tropes of Lear. St. Thomas, Dante, I mean, he would have had it all. He would have known these things. But what happened in his time that didn't happen in Dante's is the Reformation and the Copernican Revolution. In the Reformation, Christendom came to a, um, a crash. It just, just it fell apart. It's like a shipwreck. And the Copernican Revolution um, caused everybody to doubt any kind of authority. Because if the world had believed that the Ptolemaic way was the way of the universe, that that explained everything, including the church, because the church adopted it, it, it assimilated it into his way of thinking, and that was proven to be wrong, then how could you believe in anybody anymore? So science just dismantled everything. It, 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 it caused everybody to doubt and question what their beliefs were. I've argued before that that was... Um, um, a, a time of grace because it caused it forced people to question their metaphysical underpinnings their beliefs they couldn't take them for granted anymore it's at times like that that great art is produced Alan Tate has said that the greatest art is always produced at a time at an apex in a civilization's life just at that point when something great happens and it's about to fall the poets remember the past they hold on to it 
It's a form of memory. Shakespeare lived at that time and he knew it. The, the past that he knew it was fading. He was on the verge of a new world. So he was particularly sensitive to these things. I, I hope you see right now how, how Hamlet deals with one major problem. It's a reformation. It's, it's a problem for all of us. Um, and in Lear, he's doing the same thing. Um, I suggested last time that at that point in history, Shakespeare's talking to an audience that's lost its Christian's belief. A lot of the people are skeptics. They're no longer believing. And if they do believe, they don't hold their faith blindly. They've got to question it. If you look at the Christian Middle Ages, it's an unreflective time. People don't think about their faith at all. They just believe it. You grow up that way. You don't think about your faith. At that point in history, that couldn't happen anymore. People had to question their faith. They didn't know if it was right or wrong. So it's a period of tremendous skepticism, people questioning the ground of their beliefs, what they're doing. Um, he takes as his central figure an actual historical figure, just like Hamlet. In this case, it's a man named King Lear who lived nine centuries before Christ, just before Isaiah, just before Isaiah. Shakespeare would have known all of this. He's an English king. Now I want you to hold on to this really, really well. We're doing Hamlet, King Lear, Pericles, and Winter's Tale. In all four of those tragedies, we're dealing with kings, monarchies. Winter's Tale is the tragedy. We're dealing with... <laughs> we're dealing with um, kings, and they're all tragic figures, all of them, all of them. By doing that, he helps us to see what happens when um, human character combines with power, what men tend to do with their power. So that in a modern world like ours, even though we, we don't live under a monarchy, we live under a president, we, we think, God, we think because he's elected, he will serve us. God, I just, I don't, I'm, I'm going to have to restrain myself here. We think because, sorry, God, I don't know that I can get through this because I feel like I'm, because we live under a president and he's elected by us, unlike monarchs who were inherited, I mean, they inherited the thrones or, you know, came into them, regardless of whatever the people's wills were. Um, we think we're freer. But one of the advantages of looking at Shakespeare's plays dealing with kings is that we see what happens to any human being, a man, and unless in this case in a woman, because women are encouraged to grow into power today, to exercise their power. What happens when human character combines with power? What people do with it? Because we're going to watch that with Lear, and we're going to see what happens with his daughters, Goneril and Reagan, when they acquire that power, what happens to them. So even though it's dealing with monarchies, it, it's very relevant to our time. Okay, keep that in mind. One of the things to keep in mind is that Shakespeare was writing during the Tudor reign. And if you know anything about history, you know that, that, um, that the Tudor reign um, turned on a moment when Bolingbroke usurped Richard II's power, took it by force, and claimed a legitimacy to what he did. So from that point forward, historically in time, the king sat on an unsettled throne. 
that he knew that he was in danger. That was true for Henry, it was true for his successors, it was even true for Queen Elizabeth. All of them knew that they were in danger. Okay, So this whole question of legitimacy, whether they were um, justly um, placed or not, was a, was a crucial one. In every one of these plays that we're dealing with, except maybe Pericles, we're dealing with kings who are flawed, very flawed. And in some ways, they point directly to Henry, what Henry VIII did when he assumed power, and all of his successors, men or women. Um, what happens with a king when he acquires power, and in, in what we're going to see is the way it blinds him, the way it keeps him from doing some things that would be just that a good king would do. So the, the role of authority in the play, the role of kings, um, some of the other major themes we've talked about, the, the theme focuses on a threshold moment, what we can call a liminal moment. A liminal moment is when a threshold, a change takes place. Liminal. It marks a change like a river or a crossing. Or a <coughs> Lear has reached a point in his life where he wants to unburden himself of his responsibilities. He's tired. Sorry. He's tired. He wants to unburden himself, so he wants to pass on his authority, his whole life, to his children. And ironically, he wants to do it in a way while he still has responsibility or power for doing some things. And that creates the major conflicts of the play. When somebody wants to, pass, to make a will and pass on certain things and still hold on to things himself, when he's already passed on authority to those who come after him. So you've got two orders of authority actually in conflict with each other. When his daughters have the authority, they think they should be able to rule. Lear doesn't want to give it, damp, give it back or have it undermined. And the two generations go at it. The other is that what we see in this passing is so profound. Lear has no clue of the implications of what he's doing. None at all. None at all. Um, he divides down the kingdom expecting to give the greater part to Cordelia, but because she doesn't declare the same love that her sisters does, he ostracizes her. He, um, he admits her from his will. He banishes her. And we went over this last time. You remember that the, that the nature of the exchange when he passes it down depends on buying love. He wants to know how much his daughters love him, and it's on the basis of how much they do that he will give them a, a proportionate power. So he's treating love and wisdom and authority as if it can be purchased. Lear sees none of this. He doesn't see any of it. So one of the things that's happening in this period of transition of, of somebody reaching old age, and I'm, I, I'm trusting that all of us have a sense of how important this is because most of us here are reaching or have reached that age where we know we may not be here next week, that we're passing on our lives to our children and what we do with that is going to matter. What we do with that is going to be really profound. We either take care with that or we're in trouble. 
because lots of people just like Lear. I mean, they pass it on like it's a quantity or money. And but there are serious spiritual and moral problems here. One of the one of the interesting that Shakespeare reveals in this play is that there are implications to what he does that he doesn't see, and it makes in question makes us question what kind of a ruler, what kind of a father he was. I hope that's clear, because what we see is once he passes on that authority, his children, Cordelia and Reagan, are witches. What they do is awful. They don't recognize him as a father anymore. They use their power in a way that's insulting to him, degrading. So what we see in this translation and moving from one world to another are all the things that Lear, or some of the things that Lear didn't, clearly didn't see when he was king and father. That there were things he neglected that he didn't take care of. He's going to blame his daughters. He's going to, we're going to see that scene next week when we come back together. In the scene when he's on the heath, when he leaves Goneril and Regnans, he'll go onto the heath and he will say, howling to the winds and the storms, because it's going to, it's going to be a titanic. It's going to be an epic cosmic scene. And he rails to the storms and the clouds and he says, I'm a, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Remember that line, more sinned against than sinning. He sees the fault as resting with other people, not himself. So he's showing the tendency of human beings to blame somebody else before they look at themselves. That's a major theme, so that's two of them. A third one, a third scene, or a third theme is nature. You know that in Boethius, Boethius made the argument that there is a God overlooking nature and that there's an order to things in nature. Okay? So if a father gives rise, gives rise to children, if he procreates and he has children, those children owe their lives to him and since they do, they owe him an obedience. They honor him. I mean, that's, by the way, that's one of God's Ten Commandments. Yeah? And, and hold on, I can't say this strongly enough right now. Christ made it really clear that he did not adhere to so many of the Jewish laws. Because I think there were 613, six, I don't know how many there were in that time, but but the Jews had multiplied the laws and created all these observances, and Christ never honored them. But he never, ever went against his father's commandments. Ever. It's absolutely crucial to see that. He would never have gone against his father. He says, in me you see the father, I do the father's will, he sent me. So he was absolutely obedient to his father. One of the commandments is, children obey or honor your parents. So when you look at the play, look at those kids who honor their parents and ask yourself, how many of those parents raise their kids to help them do that? Not, not by beating them over the heads, but by you know, carrying that in themselves. Because some of the kids honor their parents, some don't. Cordelia honors her father. No matter what he does, she will not stop honoring him. Edgar honors his father. Edmund does not. Gloucester is not a very wise man. In fact, there's lots of things that are really un morally unlikable about him. We talked about that last week. 
the glibness with which he treats Edmund to me is it's just disturbing to see a you know a father talk about sexually what happened to produce that son. Edgar revolts. Ed, sorry, Edmund revolts. Edgar is absolutely faithful. He takes on a disguise to watch after his dad. Cordelia watches after her father. So the the fact that a father is good or bad in itself is not a reason for losing obedience. That's absolutely scriptural and Catholic. And I'm Catholic, I shouldn't even use the word. It's scriptural. It's absolutely scriptural. You know that all the letters, I mean, most of the major letters coming out of the scripture, Peter and Paul and all of them said, you obey your political leaders. Father, Father Flynn gave a, a remarkable homily on that about a year ago, which just really surprised me. I mean, um, um, he, he's a libertarian, but in that particular homily, he made it clear that everybody's asked to obey their political leaders. So all human beings are asked to obey their political leaders, they're asked to obey their parents, not on the basis of whether they think they're good or bad, because all of us are sinners who are asked to obey. God, God doesn't say in his command, only honor your parents when they're good. Right? It says honor your parents. Here's the one caveat to that. When is it okay not to honor your parents or not to honor? Because this is biblical as well. Shakespeare's absolutely, even though he never mentions scripture or rarely mentions scripture, he's absolutely scriptural in everything he does. What's the one occasion when a parent can disobey or, or, or a citizen can go against his leader? Because here's the thing. If you make your own private will the arbiter, you can go against your parents because you don't like what they're doing. You make your private will greater than everybody. That's what we see in the play. Every one of those characters make their own private will the arbiter. And what they do is, all they do is increase the violence around them. That's the one of the major themes of the play. Right? Um, Reagan. What's the... Goneril. Goneril. Edmund, they're all acting on the basis of their private wills, what they want, and the power they have to get it. What's the consequences of their actions? It's violence everywhere. What's the one occasion where a child or a citizen can, can appropriately go against a parent or a political leader? Scripture is pretty clear in this. When they're in violation of higher law, they're right. in violation of God's law. Right. Is everybody clear? I mean, we've got examples, right? We've got it from the Old Testament, New Testament. When a leader asks somebody to follow their laws when it meant abandoning their own faith, they didn't do it. I can't remember Lawrence's, remember when he burned the hand or the three men in the furnace? And I mean, we've got examples over and over and over again of, of people who are asked to renounce their faith and follow the laws of the political world. And in every one of those cases, they said no. This idea is actually embedded in our laws. That's where the idea, which is part of Geneva Conventions, come from, that you are required to obey lawful orders, and you're expected to disobey unlawful orders. Yeah. Yeah, but you've got to be, yeah, I'm so glad you said it, Chuck. One of the difficulties in our modern age, just to follow up your point, because I think it's really good, the Catholic tradition has been sounder on this because they have a strong tradition of what's called natural law. 
It runs through it runs from the ancients, pagans through Saint Thomas and moderns. But there's a strong belief in natural law because natural law is rooted in divine law, scripture. And if you lose sense, here's by the way, this goes abs- straight to the play. If you lose a sense of natural law, there's no law in nature. Then all law is man-made, and you can make it what you will. And this was the fundamental problem that Plato raised in the Republic. It's it's one of those books that I've been referring to from the beginning. Because the opening problem in Plato's Republic is, what is justice? And one of the men, Thrasymachus, says, justice is the, is the, the stronger over the weaker. Justice is that. Whatever they decide will be law. And the whole burden of the Republic is to disprove that position, that there is an inherent law in nature. Most people today, today do not believe in natural law. They believe that law is man-made, it's conventional. So who's ever's in power? So all the judges today who are sitting in the Supreme Court or you know, local courts, so many of them today take that modern, what they call a liberal position, that law is what you make it. If you've got this certain vision of what the world should be, you act according to that. They can, they can turn criminals back out on the streets because they can say, this criminal is not responsible for what he did. He was a product of society. You create your own laws because you have the power. You make that justice. Plato in the Republic showed that that's not true. There's a nature to the soul. If a political regime doesn't conform itself to that nature, we've got disasters. That's our modern predicament. So... Another theme is this theme of justice. Is there an order to nature? Is nature just blind? If there is an order and parents give life to their children, do the children owe the parents something? Um, And where they don't, are they going against not just their parents, are they going against their own nature? And the last one um, that I'll... um, well, the, the, actually, if you'll just combine the, the two themes of nature and justice, you'll pull those together. Those are two of the major themes. So s- those are some of the major themes um, of King Lear. After the opening scene, Lear is going to um, go to Goneril's, expecting her to receive him with open arms. And if you've read the play, you know she doesn't. And Lear is horrified because... He reaches a point where he looks at his daughter and asks whether he knows her as, as his daughter and whether she knows him as a father. There's this moment of a shock, estrangement, where she speaks to him in a way that he's never heard her speak before. She sends him away. She diminishes his train by half. She sends him on to Reagan, and Reagan will do the same. So immediately, we're going to see the consequences of Lear's reign, what he did as a father that his children would turn on him, and we've got to ask why. What does it show? At the same time, you know that Ed, Edmund is um, tricking his father and his brother. He's convincing his father that Edgar is out to kill him, and he tells Glosser to stay away. And when Edgar comes up, he says to Edgar, stay away from the father because the father's angry at you. He thinks you're going to do something harm. So he's, he's manipulated a situation. He's created a situation where he can control both the father and son in order that he can get his inheritance. 
So all people are standing on the verge of this inheritance, what they're inheriting from the past. And it's Shakespeare's way of showing there's something wrong in the way that people have received the world and the way they're passing it on. And in that sense, it's universal. It applies to every one of us because every one of us is going to reach a point where we have to make out a will. Sorry to put a dark cast on this tonight, but... Um, where's the other... Th um, oh, and the other thing I want you to keep in mind. So here's the major question for this as it was for Hamlet. The end is going to be a bloody ending. It's just, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to give it away. I, I think it's extraordinary. I'm, it, it, to me, it's beautiful. But a lot of people are going to die. But as in Hamlet, I, I, I don't want to give this away. Extraordinary things happen the way they do with Hamlet. So it's not, Heather, if, I, if you're there, it, it's tragic in the sense that I tried to explain earlier that it, it follows this tragic pattern. People are going to die. So it's from good fortune to bad, and but because of the turn, the peripatia, and the recognition, something happens to both Gloucester and Lear, and we have to ask, what happens? Who are they at the end? And the ultimate question for me is the same question I asked for Hamlet: Is there a God in this world? Is there a God? A lot of people are going to die um, at the end, and lots of people are going to say it's. It's a violent play, and what kind of God would allow this? It's a bad God. If that's the God you believe in, you should change gods. Is that what we do? Or is there something else to be seen? If there's something else to be seen, what is it? Okay. So next week we start in earnest on Lear. Okay. It's, a, it's an extraordinary play. It's a beautiful play. Boethius runs through it. Remember, Boethius... Lady Philosophy could not save Boethius from his execution. She wasn't trying to do that. There's no way she could have spared him or saved him. Lots of people are going to die here. Does that mean it's their death is meaningless, that it's an indication of a violent god or a god we shouldn't like? Is there a god in this play? If there is, how do we understand him? Okay. Let me stop. Any questions or comments before we stop? Must not be doing something good here. You guys are you guys look too you guys look too serious and Okay. Well, we're thinking about our wills, Bob. Yeah. You're what you're what? Say it again? We're thinking about our wills, Bob. <laughs> Everybody's gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's coming. <laughs> Father Flynn was famous for saying, "All of us, all of us have the same end. It's a six by five box. They're all going to be there, you know, at some point." <laughs> okay, you guys have a good week. Be safe. Um, keep us in your prayers, please, Suzanne and me, and um, you are in our prayers. So um, good to see you all again, Julie. It was especially good to see you showing up here, and Heather. I'm glad you're back, and and um, Chuck. I'm glad you're back too, and Connie. Um, um, I know this is hard for you guys to do, but you guys behave for a week. Just try to behave. <laughs> Good night. Bye. Good Bye. Good night. Oh, I'm glad you.